happy. It's a rather interesting word, isn't it? Now, I, I know why the title happy was picked by our pastoral team. Happy is a good word. It's a good word. The pursuit of happiness is, is, is a presumed right to free-thinking people. We all long for it. I mean, you, you, you want to see a huge smile on a, on a given male and, and call it a happy moment? Then hang around a car lot and watch his face as he drives off in his new car. Then follow him off the car lot. Watch as he's T-boned at the first intersection and take note of his face. Not a happy moment. In the space of one potential city block, he's gone from the high to happy to the complete removal of happy. I mean, it it doesn't even have to be a write-off. Let his three-year-old run a scrape down the side of his new vehicle. Happy's gone. Just saying. Now again, I'm not dissing happy. It's a good word and worthy of a title for a sermon series. We're working with it. The problem is when we get to Philippians chapter 3, we're forced to see its shortcomings. Because happy is not equal to another somewhat synonymous word. And that word is joy. And I know this is sort of a, a theological debate between us pastoral types. But when I get to this third chapter, I have to make the distinction. At least for the sake of understanding how we hang on to something that feels so elusive that can one day be here and we think it's there forever and within hours it's gone and we think we'll never get it. It's a strange word. Our text this morning forces us to make the distinction. You see, happy, in my definition for us this morning, happy depends on my external circumstances, what's going on around me how my outer world is functioning or dysfunctioning at any given moment. And hence it's defined well by our new car illustration. We get it, whether it's with a new car or something else that we thought would be the, the ultimate, only to find out that within some period of time, we've lost what we initially thought we would have forever. And therefore, in order to understand the depth, joy, versus happy, we need to differentiate between what is going on in our outer world and what is going on in our inner world. It's a huge difference. They're two very different places. So if if we're to give our text this morning a title, I would give it this name, Joy in Believing, not Happy in Believing. Not to take away the wonderful word, I'm not. I just need to find a way in order to anchor this very important difference because as we begin to approach Philippians chapter 3, which you'll find on page 952 in your pew Bibles, we need to find a way to express the world around us and the world within us. Joy is what penetrates to the very soul because it's not managed by external circumstances. Example, our things. I I don't know how we can escape that in the materialistic society that we live in, but the truth of the matter is we 
are very strongly influenced by the stuff around us. Who hasn't thought, at least, it would be absolutely amazing to win the lottery? Tell me if you've never thought that thought. See, it's our truth. We, we really have fallen into uh, the draw of a culture that says the more we get, the better it is. And yet I think there's probably very few of us here in, the world, in, in this room who would not agree with the fact and draw a conclusion that says, well, I know things can't make me happy. We say it, but how far has it penetrated? No, the things in our world, the relationships in our homes. I mean, we know, I, when I'm performing a wedding and I'm standing in front of the young couple who believe absolutely everything is perfect and nothing can go wrong, I say to them, you are about to pronounce to one another the most profound I love you you ever can. And I want you to understand this simple truth that the vows you make have nothing to do with the circumstances in your outer world. That's why I'm asking you right now to promise me, whether in sickness or in health, whether for richer or for poorer, whether for better or for worse, I need you to agree with each other right now, I love you. Because the relationship you're walking into is going to go much deeper than the circumstances of your outer world. It's simply true. We need to find a root, we need to find an anchor within us that's going to hold us when life gets stupid. Because it's going to. In our businesses, with our neighbors, extended family, whether, whether we're defined by successes or our failures... We need something that runs deep. Joy radiates from a source deep within us. I want to work with this this morning. It's defined by our belief system, not our circumstances. Hence the title, Joy is Believing. It's my belief system. It's what I hang on to <clears throat> that is going to become very important. And I bet you there's no water up here. <clears throat> Is there somebody with the gift of helps in here? <clears throat> Thank you. A famous philosopher type person wrote this. I, I put that in there because when I was working on this, I didn't want to give you his name because I thought it might upset some of you because he's not a Christian. But outside of the scripture, when I came across this quote, I said he's got it. Because I am totally convinced that anybody who seeks for truth will probably stumble upon it if they give enough time to it. Because if you seek, you find. And this person, by the name of Buddha, wrote this. And though we don't follow his leanings or his practices, he did think a whole lot about life. And he watched and observed things. Thank you. Lord bless you and keep you. May cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious. <laughs> It's nice to say that to somebody living. <clears throat> Sorry. Here's what he said. We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. 
And when the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let's go back to the word pure here. He's not just talking about moral purity here. He's really talking about the integrity of life. When my belief systems line up with what I say, and, or when, I, when, when my actions line up with what I say, they form my belief systems, and it creates a kind of purity within me that's very, very satisfying. In fact, if we want to go deeper, we can simply call it joy. It's what happens. Well, he, he does for us in a sense, doesn't he? Let me give it to you again. We are shaped by our thoughts... We become what we think, and when the mind is pure, aligned, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. I wonder if we get that. We need to let that simple, profound truth settle into something down in here, because I guarantee, I promise, I put all my money on it, that everyone in this room struggles with something out there that destroys what is in here. And yet we have been offered as followers of Christ something richer and deeper and more anchored. Joy is internal and can be well protected by our beliefs and the choices that are formed by those beliefs. So let's see how Paul helps us to get through um, by looking at Philippians chapter 3. It's there. I think I said page 952 in your pew Bible. It's really worthy of following along here. Seeing and hearing help to plant it. Verse 1. Finally. I'm reading from the NIV. Finally. Interesting word. Finally. Paul's coming to a point. Now, now in chapter 1, he, he talked about joy and suffering. Now, that, that's a hard one. We're going to work with that one this morning. And then he, he comes into chapter 2 and he talks about joy and giving. Uh, no, he talks about joy in serving, I think. And then in chapter 4, he talks about joy in giving. But we come to this word where he says, now finally, finally, I need to say this to you. Finally, we've worked through all of this stuff, and now I need to get you <clears throat> to the next point. Excuse me, folks. <clears throat> but here's the truth around the word, Finally. Every one of us here has had a finally, the ending of something. For everyone in this room, that finally <clears throat> was this week. We just got through it. Finally, whatever was going on is in the past. I don't know what your week was like. Was it a good one? Was it, was it, was it one that brought you some level of satisfaction? Or, or are you sitting there this morning just feeling the heaviness of the things that happened throughout those last seven days, and you come to this point today, and Paul says to us, finally, finally, good or bad, finally. But it's not just that he brings us <clears throat> to the end of something. He does something rather strange in this approach. Look at what he says. M remember, he, he's talking to them about how to deal with suffering. He, he's talked to them about how to be servants. He, he's going to be talking to them about how to give and, and give sacrificially. But he says, finally, my brothers, my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Regardless, if joy is to be, be maintained, there is only one response. Now, I, I, I know that just sounds 
backwards or hard or what do you mean kind of reaction. But the truth of this, if we truly believe in what we just experienced a few moments ago, the things that happened in your world this past week should not deter us from this very important practice. Finally, take it all, put it together, form it in a thought, a prayer, or write it out in your journal, but finally, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. See, notice it was no trouble for Paul to rejoice in the Lord. So if you're having trouble today rejoicing in that way, Paul gives us several things to watch out for, and this is what we want to work with this morning. Because it really does sound foreign in many, many ways. How do I rejoice in trouble? That's stupid. How do I rejoice if I have just lost something very significant and I'm supposed to come to church and say, happy in Jesus? That just sounds stupid. Well, if, if your life is defined by the outward, your outward experience, it is stupid. There are things in our world that do not make us happy. There are things in our world that bring us deep pain. All regularly we are disappointed by the people around us. It's simply a truth. But Paul isn't wanting us to examine ourselves according to our circumstances. He wants to take us deeper into something that runs underneath the waves of life. He wants to take us down to a quiet place. And it is in that context that he says to us, rejoice. I'll show you how. My exercise, I guess. He starts off, verse two, chapter, verses 2 and 3. He says, first of all, if we're going to protect this inner world, then let's be observant. We need to watch out for opposition because it's going to come. Don't think for one moment when we get to the, to the roots of joy that we are no longer under spiritual attack. Don't think for one moment that everything is going to go rosy. That, that is simple heresy. We live in a fallen world, my friends, and it's not looking prettier as I watch it. In fact, I, I, I am with incredible conviction come to you this morning believing that Jesus has to do something soon. I don't know what it's going to be. He's either going to come, it'd be nice for a rapture, I suppose, at times, um, or, or, but something has to happen. I come to you with that deep, deep conviction. And so I, I'm not trying to make light <coughs> of your word. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> experiences. <clears throat> because they're real to you. Suffering is real. Grief is real. Pain is real. Disappointment is real. Let's go deeper, though. Let's not call that the reality of life. Let's take what Paul calls the reality of life. Here's how he goes. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who give glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul, if his world was to be defined by his outward experiences, he would have given up long ago. He has gone through every imaginable kind of suffering you could possibly give. That's what gives weight to the word when he says, finally rejoice in the Lord. It's because he's not writing some sort of theory. He's not writing out of some kind of hope-so, positive thinking attitude. He's talking out of experience. 
He knows what it is to be persecuted, to be stoned, to be left for dead, to be chased over a wall to rescue or to escape from his, uh, his oppressors. He knows it all. And so he gives us a word that's real. Now hang on to this world. Now, now, now remember, this is joy and believing. What we're, what we're doing this morning is adjusting our belief system. We're moving from the way a world has defined happiness and we're moving into a world where God is defining what it means to be joyful, to rejoice in God. So Paul says, watch out for those dogs. He was being opposed by those who believed you must be circumcised in order to be saved. They were called Judaizers. They were interested in the things that Jesus taught, were kind of somewhat encouraged by what he was promising, but they were saying to the Gentiles... That no, 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 first of all, you have to become a Jew, get circumcised, and then you can be followers of Jesus. And Paul's opposing that for many reasons, and that's another sermon. But at this point, he is saying, no, these people who are coming against you now, demanding that you go through this ritual of circumcision, are only taking away your freedom. And they're doing it so aggressively. That's why they use the word dogs. This isn't a lap dog. This isn't Poochie sitting on your lap. These are, are the vicious kinds of animals that wander around and go into packs and do nothing but interest themselves. <laughs> At least my PowerPoint hasn't gone off, right? <laughs> who, who, who are viciously trying to rob them of their internal experience. So he calls them these dogs. They did evil things to Paul. They persecuted him. They spoke cruelly about him. They gossiped about him. They did everything they could to, to discount his authority among them. And what was Paul's response? Well, in verse 3, he just simply came to them. He said, those people, those mutilators of the flesh, I want you to understand that we come from a totally different viewpoint. We worship by the Spirit of God. Verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God. Our faith runs deeper than the flesh. The things out there that might attract us, the things out there that might seem logical, the things out there that might make some kind of, of, of human sense, we want you to know that those issues are too shallow for us to accept if we want to survive the realities of our world. We walk and worship by the Spirit of God. There's a simple question for you here. What are we going to do when opposition happens? How are we going to stand up against it? Argument typically doesn't work. The more I argue, I convince myself I'm right, and you convince yourself that you're right. It doesn't work. No, Paul goes on to say, we worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus. When the thought runs through your head, boy, my problems would be solved if I won the lottery. We think it. Got a raise. Or my problems would go away if somehow I could just get away from that person. Spouse, parent, friend. And we think somehow that we could just solve all our problems. When Paul, out of experience, folks, says this, no, 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 no. The way that I will resolve and come to terms with the issues of my world is to worship the Spirit, not the things around me, and discover that there's a glory far greater than anything that I can create. My glory is in Christ. Do you know him that well? 
Do, do, do you have this kind of connection with God that runs so deep that when your world is all upside down, you can literally look into the face of God and say, there is my hope. There is my life. There's everything I need. Now, you're not going to walk out of this room. If, you, if you're identifying with what I'm sharing with you and you've been struggling in this particular area and your world has been going like this and you're saying, okay, I need something that anchors me deeper, I want you to understand that walking out of this sermon or saying yes to this sermon is not going to change you overnight. There's a discipline that follows this. There, there, there will be times in your struggle, I guarantee you, that there, that there will simply be days where you will call out to the name of Jesus over and over and over again. The issue isn't, or the issue is, how firmly do I believe that Jesus is my everything? Is he kind of a good guy to hang around, to do devotions with, hoping that he'll help me along the way? You see, that'll never carry you. If Jesus is simply some sort of helper on the side, I, I really react to the license plate that says, God is my, have you seen it? God is my co-pilot. Yeah. I, I react to that. God is not my co-pilot. God is my pilot. I, I have no idea what tomorrow's going to hold. He's the one that's driving this. I have no idea what stuff my world is going to throw into me. I know what it's like to lose a job that I had, thought was secure. I, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to walk back into circumstances where, where I really felt that, that my world should be crumbled and I should be destroyed. I know what that is like. And so therefore, if I am going to master my world, I cannot do it by myself. There is only one who I can glory in. And my world cannot offer it to me. There is nothing in your life. I don't care what position you hold, high or low. I don't care how much money you are making or whether you're afraid of what's coming up because you, you don't have enough for retirement. I, I don't. The truth is simply this. There's a God, a Christ to glory in. That's our world, friends. We need to know this God without question. So if there's a question for you to think about, what am I going to do? Not if, but when opposition lands. Well, Jesus makes this rather easy for us. In fact, he, he, he lays it out for us. <clears throat> My goodness. And he does this for us in Matthew. Why didn't that one print out for me? There it is, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Here's, here's how he makes it simple for us. There's no question now. What do I do when things happen? No, he's going to tell us. Are you ready for it? Blessed are you. Filled with joy are you. Content are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. There it goes again. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is really upside down living, isn't it? 
This is not the way we operate. This is laughable. We want to say, every one of us will probably say, well, that's easier said than done. The issue isn't whether it's easier said than done. The issue is, are we going to believe it as part of God's word to us? Is this the pattern he's laying out for us? And I want to assure you, because they threw the word rejoice in there, that it isn't so that he'll make life hard for you, make you grumpy, miserable Christians. He's saying, no, in the face of what is inevitable, rejoice, rejoice. Because there's something far greater going on than what you're experiencing right now in your outer world. There's something more powerful that is transpiring in your life that will supersede all the junk that could ever, ever come before you. We don't know what it is to suffer. We might get a little laugh at our faith. We might, well, we're probably more afraid to speak up about it often. But we don't know what it is. Have you ever wondered how do you pray for the church in Iran? Have you ever tried to figure that one out? How How do you pray for people who have held on tenaciously to a faith that's caused them to be persecuted in some of the worst ways possible? How do you pray for them? Jesus blessed the Christians in Iran. No. Here's what I'm understanding. Jesus, let your glory be greater than crucifixion. That's the reality. Let your glory be greater than the things that you're doing to your kids. That's our reality. Let your glory be greater than the the, the cost of running from your country, wondering how you're going to survive tomorrow. Let it be God. See, we don't get this passage because we've never had to live what Paul's talking about yet. Rejoice and be glad because, friends, there's a reward far greater. This is the truth of God's word. This isn't cute sayings. This isn't something to fill in 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. I need you to hear this. Our reward has nothing to do with the size of our bank account or lack of it. Our reward is in heaven. Jesus was no fool when he said to his followers, um, put your treasures in heaven, not on earth. He knew what he was talking about. He knew that ultimately if life was going to be filled with with the stuff that's going to get us through, it's not going to be because of our collection here, it's going to be because of what we anticipate there. He is the faithful one. His glory is stored up for us. He has gone to prepare a place for us, an amazing place for us, friends. It can't even be compared to the things of this world. Nothing can compare to it. What he is there offering us is absolutely amazing. And the way that we can hang on to that and experience joy in life is actually to believe it. So much so that in our belief system we live it. Because it's the anchor of joy. Our world can't give it to us. It's not there for us to be had. It can only be found when we put our focus where Jesus Christ is. It's only when we start identifying with Christ. Let him be your hero. Let him ultimately be the one that matters in your life. No identity in yourself. It'll fail you. And it's a sign that our faith is genuine.
in all the things that I have said to you, I, I, don't, I don't know where your head's going with it. I know I've sat in pews and listened to things similar and you kind of let this stuff run around in your head and wait for the sermon to get over. It's often our reality. But somehow this morning, if your life matters a lot to you, I guess as it does, if your desire is for success, and I, 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 I assume it probably is, then we have to take a belief system that our world has so drilled into us and flip it on its head. And we need to dare go to the word of God and find out how God describes and defines real life for us. Because if we want to talk about joy, or if we want to talk about happy, it will not be found, it will not be found in the ways of our world. Our world lies to us. Our world fills us with all kinds of notions that can only do one thing, and that is lift you up and drop you down. And we all know it, because we've all been there. Nobody at this point in time, I don't care how young you are in this room, nobody in this life has lived every day of happy. We know that it's not the if stuff will happen, it's the wondering when will happen. And yet God in his great love for us says the thief comes in to destroy and to steal. But I have come to give you what? Tell me. You know it. Life, abundant life. Life to its fullest measure. And so in the middle of our life, Jesus dares to throw in this word. <clears throat> Finally, what? Tell me, rejoice, rejoice. Joy is the mark of our faith. Joy is the thing that can't be taken away. But I need to tell you is that, that joy is not an emotion. Joy is a choice followed by an emotion. It, it's much like love. We, we want love to have this incredible feeling. And yet any of you who have been married or raised children or have lived with a nasty boss, you know that it's short-lived. You know it's got its ups and downs. You simply know that. What God has offered is something that runs deep. And it's there for us if you choose it. Not an emotion. Anybody hungry? <laughs> Verse 4. I'm just going to do this really, really quickly. This might throw off my PowerPoint guy. I don't know. Forgive me. But Paul, in verses 4 to 11, goes through all his credentials, his reason to be looked upon and admired by the world around him. And he thought he was, he was doing it so well. He, he, he was circumcised in the eighth day. That, that, in, in his culture, that was important. Of the people of Israel, that's important. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was really significant. Important people came from that tribe. And it was one of the faithful ones to the, the whole thing of, of uh, well, that, history. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. He, he had zeal. He was persecuting the church because he believed that's what God wanted. And as for legalistic righteousness, following all the laws, he didn't drink or chew or go with girls who do. He didn't do that kind of stuff. 
As far as that, he said, I'm faultless. I got this all together. My life is worth it. But whatever was to my profit, look at these words, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Watch out for pride. If the devil can't get you to stop rejoicing in the Lord through opposition, he'll get you through pride. I mean, how many Christians start out with confidence in the Lord and end up with confidence in the flesh? Those early days, prayed about everything, remember? Jesus was so great. And then you became an adult. And you said, I can handle this one. I can do this. And off you go, attempting to, to fill in all the blanks in life. And, and, and you're doing it out of, well, you're not following the ways of God. Matthew, whatever there, didn't make sense to you. Who's Paul rejoicing in? His accomplishments? No, the secret is to always rejoice in Christ's accomplishments. In our passage, Paul begins by comparing himself with others. He has this checklist, right? He, he's, he's on the circumcised side. He, he's of the great nationality, the right tribe. He's a Pharisee. He wasn't that sinner. And, and every time Paul took his little pri his checklist out on himself and, and checked it all off, he says, I'm the winner. Look at me. People talked about Paul. Whether they liked him or not, the name of Paul was going everywhere. And then one day Jesus got a hold of his life and he changed his comparison. And he said, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And every time he made the checkpoint, it wasn't Paul that was winning, it was Christ that was winning. How? Well, Christ won because Paul had to do something very significant. He had to adjust his belief system. He had to take the things that made sense to him up here, but were not making sense when he read here, and he had to do something about it. And he made the adjustment. And we read in that passage that he said, what is, more, what is more, I considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Friends, just put yourself into that context. Think about your bank account. Think about the house you live in. Think about the significance, your job, and all those sorts of things. Think if, if, if at some point, out of some, for, for some reason, you had to lose it all. Would it matter? That's a stupid question. I understand that. And how do we gather it? I don't know. Paul did. And I, I don't know where life is going to go, but I do know this, that there is some point in some place in life when we take and measure ourselves against the world, we say it is of no value relative to the life that I have in Jesus. If I lost everything tomorrow, could I still rejoice in the Lord? I'm going to whip this to my conclusion. At first, I, I saw God as my observer. He, he, was, he was my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong. So as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I died, he was out there, sort of like the queen. Recognized her picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know her. But later on when I met Christ, it, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. It, it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I, I don't know when it was that he suggested that we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. 
It was rather boring, but predictable. It felt very safe. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he would say to me, pedal. I worried, was anxious, and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed, didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust in that moment. I, I, I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, <clears throat> I'm scared, he leaned back, touched my hand. He took me to, to people with gifts that, that I needed, gifts of healing and acceptance, joy. They, they, they gave me gifts to, to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. And he said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met, and, and I found that in giving, I received, and, and still our burden was light. I did not trust them at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take the sharp corners. He, he knows how to jump to clear the high rocks, and he knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest of places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and, and the cool breeze in my face. And with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I can't do any more, he just smiles and he says, pedal, pedal. And in that single word, single word I discovered the meaning of joy. In that moment, I discovered he had a life that superseded mine. As irrational as it might have appeared to this simple-minded man, there was something running deeper, and he calls us to it. He calls us to it, friends. And we'll find that word when we're willing to go to his word and discover the significance of his journey, not the defense of my journey. Because in his is joy, in mine is happy. And I'm only an intersection away from going from a smile to a not happy face always. Let us pray. Jesus, there's so much in all of this. I acknowledge that even in the face of this, I struggle. There, there are things that don't make sense to me. I, I try to forget what's behind, like you say, and I, and I try to steer for what's ahead, and yet, God, I confess that that journey is often complicated. And I'm asking this morning that you would give to us the confidence to take the bike ride. And in the face of whatever it is you should give to us, that we would be faithful enough to pedal because we know in that journey is the promise of joy. And finally, in all of our finalies, we can rejoice in the Lord, for there is no greater place to be found in all of life. 
Set our affections upon heaven, not on earth. Fill our hearts with an intensity that supersedes the thoughts and and the reasons and the rationales of this world. And give us a hope that is great, anchored in you. May our identity be in you. May we trust in you. May we believe in everything that befalls us. You are there and you are our joy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Amen.